0: Hello and welcome to Blackwells Presents. On Thursday the 17th of October we were delighted to be joined by Garth Nix and R.F. Kuang to discuss Garth's new book, Angel Mage. Garth is the author of the fantastic Old Kingdom series for young adults, including Sabriel, as well as many other novels for young adult readers. R.F. Kwang's The Poppy War won the Reddit Fantasy Award for Best Debut last year which has been followed by The Dragon Republic. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Rebecca Kuang. I'm the author of the Poppy War, and the Dragon Republic. The Poppy War, I always introduce as um, Avatar, the last airbender, if everybody was on drugs, and Azula was the main character. And I, I'm sure everybody knows who Garth Nix is, but in case they don't...
1: I am Garth Nix. There we are. Um, <coughs> It's great to be back here in Oxford. I always always love to come to Oxford. Thank you very much, Rebecca, for agreeing to to do this with me. Um, I'm here this time with Angel Mage, uh, my newest book. Uh, Thanks to the assistance of various people on social media and so forth, I've been able to retrospectively construct an elevator pitch for this book. Uh, I know you meant to have one before you write it, but uh, hey... Um, and including uh, Stevie from Glance who, who helped me work out that the elevator pitch for this book is the Three Musketeers meets Joan of Arc with angelic magic and kick ass, kick ass, women heroes. I've just been in America, and I had to I had to train myself to stay kick ass, and I'm train myself to go back to kick ass. And then I was on radio there and I wasn't sure that I could say either of those things. I had to say kick A, which probably didn't make any sense at all. Um, but I, I think that elevator pitch kind of kind of sums it up pretty well. Um, it's not a retelling of The Three Musketeers, but it's very much influenced by The Three Musketeers. Not just uh, Dumas' novel, which I love and uh, was first introduced to by a British magazine in my childhood called Look and Learn, which if you're old, you may remember, uh, which did the whole of The Three Musketeers in two pages with illustrations. There wasn't even a lot of text. Uh, I fell in love with it then. I've loved it ever since. Uh, but also a big influence in this book were my favourite screen adaptations uh, of of The Three Musketeers, which are the two films uh, directed by Richard Lester and written by George MacDonald Fraser uh, from the early 70s with the wonderful cast of Jordine um, Chaplin as the Queen, Raquel Welch as Constance Bonacieux, Faye Dunaway as Milady, uh, Charlton Heston as the card, Cardinal Richelieu, and so on. Um, I love I love I love those those films. They are all influences as well. So that that's some of the uh, some of the things that have infused the spirit of Angel Mage.
0: Yes, I'm 70 pages from the end, and I can testify it's basically the Three Musketeers with more women. More queers and magic, which are three things I think are improvements on the original. Um, do you want to read the first couple pages yeah, to give? Yeah, I'd be a very taste?
1: very happy to. I normally stand up because I'm I, I'm a mild asthmatic and I find it easy to read standing up. But I'm not sure I can juggle microphones standing up and reading a book at the same time. I can only do two of those two of those things. Uh, no, that's very that's, that's very kind of you, but um, no, I'll. I'll I'll just try and sit up very straight and see how I go. Um, I'm not going to read from the prologue. Um, you can have prologues, despite everything the internet tells you in writing advice about not having prologues. It is uh, perfectly permissible as long as you know what they are um, and what they really are for. So um, I nearly all my books have prologues. The one time I didn't write a prologue, which was for my book Frogkisser, it was basically all edited and my American editor emailed me to say, it's it's great. It's all basically done, but I think there's one thing missing. And I was reading and thinking, what could what what could be missing? And, and I read on, and it said a prologue, and I was like, yes. Um, so I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. Uh, there are five main characters in Angel Mage. Their stories converge and join together to form one mighty river of narrative. Um, the tributaries joining. Um, I'm going to read from the beginning, which is about one of the characters, a young woman called Liliath. The young woman woke in total darkness with cold stone under her, and her questing hands felt stone above and to the sides. But the moment of panic that with this realization ebbed, as she remembered why this was so, and disappeared completely when she heard the voice, the voice of power and strength that made her feel complete, made her feel alive, with it came a sudden, intense sensation of being enfolded, held close and safe, not by mere human arms, but within great wings of light and power. As you commanded long ago, that which you waited for has occurred, and so I awake you. Her, her voice croaked and failed. She swallowed, saliva moving in her mouth and throat for the first time in who knew how long. She had been stopped for a long time, just short of being dead, she knew. She would have seemed dead if anyone could have looked inside the tomb, though the remarkable preservation of her flesh would have given pause to any observers. But the chance of any onlookers had been greatly reduced by her choice of resting place, the great stone coffin topped with a massive slab of marble, all sealed with lead. It would have been natural for her to ask how long she'd been in the coffin, but that was not her first question. She thought only of what was needful for her all-consuming plan. How many suitable candidates are ready? There was a long silence, long enough for her to think the presence gone, but then the voice came again. Four. Four? But there should be hundreds! Four, repeated the voice. For a moment fury coursed through her, extreme anger that her plans, her destiny, should once again go awry. But she fought the anger down. Though she'd hoped for many more possible candidates to allow for error or mischance, four should be enough. Even one might suffice. Thank you.
0: It will surprise no one that that's the character I have the biggest crush on.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: the lady in the tomb. Um, I will, so I was thinking about reading from the prologue of The Dragon Republic, which just came out. The thing is... Yes, the um, prologue. <laughs> Uh, the thing is, the, the little kid doesn't die until, like, nine pages in, which is um, too long for now, so, so we will read a scene from the very beginning of the Poppy War where nobody dies. Yet. Yet. <laughs> Take your clothes off. Rin blinked. What? The proctor glanced up from his booklet. Cheating prevention protocol. He gestured across the room to a female proctor. Go with her if you must. Rin crossed her arms tightly across her chest and walked toward the second proctor. She was led behind a screen, patted thoroughly to make sure she hadn't packed any test materials up any orifices, and then handed a formless blue sack. Put this on, said the proctor. Is this really necessary? Rin's teeth chattered as she stripped. The exam smock was too large for her, the sleeves draped over her hands so that she had to roll them up several times. Yes. The proctor motioned for her to sit down on a bench. Last year, 12 students were caught with paper sewn into the linings of their shirts. We take precautions. Open your mouth. Rin obliged. The proctor prodded her tongue with a slim rod. No discoloration, that's good. Eyes wide open. Why would anyone drug themselves before a test? Rin asked as the proctor stretched her eyelids. The proctor didn't respond. Satisfied, she waved Rin down the hallway, where other prospective students waited in a straggly line. Their hands were empty, faces uniformly tight with anxiety. They had brought no materials to the test. Pens could be hollowed out to contain scrolls with answers written on them. Hands out where we can see them, ordered the male proctor, walking to the front of the line. Sleeves must remain rolled up past the elbow. From this point forward, you do not speak to one another. If you have to urinate, raise your hand. We have a bucket in the back of the room. What if I have to shit, a boy asked. The proctor gave him a long look. It's a 12-hour test, the boy said defensively. The proctor shrugged. Try to be quiet. (laughs) Rin had been too nervous to eat anything that morning. Even the thought of food made her nauseated. Her bladder and intestines were empty. Only her mind was full, crammed with an insane number of mathematical formulas and poems and treatises and historical dates to be spilled out on the test booklet. She was ready. The examination room fit 100 students. The desks were arranged in neat rows of 10. On each desk sat a heavy exam booklet, an inkwell, and a writing brush. Most of the other provinces of Nikan had to section off entire town halls to accommodate the thousands of students who attempted the exam each year. But Takani Township in Rooster Province was a village of farmers and peasants. Takani's families needed hands to work the fields more than they did university-educated brats. Takani only ever used the one classroom. Rin filed into the room along with the other students and took her assigned seat. She wondered how the examinees looked from above, neat squares of black hair, uniform blue smocks, and brown wooden tables. She imagined them multiplied across identical classrooms throughout the country right now, all watching the water clock with nervous anticipation. Her teeth chattered madly in a staccato that she thought everyone could surely hear, and it wasn't just from the cold. She clamped her jaw shut, but the shuddering just spread down her limbs to her hands and knees. The writing brush shook in her grasp, dribbling black droplets across the table. She tightened her grip and wrote her full name across the booklet's cover page, Fang Runin. She wasn't the only one who was nervous. Already, there were sounds of retching over the bucket in the back of the room. She squeezed her wrist, fingers closing over pale burn scars, and inhaled, focus. In the corner, a water clock rang softly. Begin, said the examiner. A hundred test booklets were opened with a flapping noise, like a flock of sparrows taking off at once. It only gets more violent from there. (laughs) Um, But we're here to talk about angel mage, so... Kick we can off also to some talk questions. about the, the, the Poppy
1: War and Dragon Republic as well. Um, I've just read um, the Poppy War, which I enjoyed very much today on the train, as a matter of fact, coming from Edinburgh. So it kept me totally engaged the whole, whole trip. So thank you very much.
0: And I'm dying right now. <laughs> Um, So I think the way we'll structure this is I had so many questions that I wrote down while I was reading Angel Mage, so I'll ask as many of them as I can, and then we'll open up the floor to some audience questions. Um, The first one is something I'm very curious about. So Sabriel, um, the book which... Made me first fall in love with your writing. Came out in Australia in ninety five, and in the U S. in nineteen ninety six, which was the year I was born. And uh, a lot of people, I think, uh, read your books when they were quite young and grew up with them. And Angel Mage is your first adult fantasy novel, right? Uh, that and... well, it's
1: actually exactly the same as all my other novels, really. <laughs> to be honest, um, I mean, I, I, and I guess that's the the question. Um, it's actually published as young adult in the United States. Um, it's published as adult in Australia. It's published as adult here. The Old Kingdom books were published as young adult and then adult in Australia. They were published as young adult first in the US, but then actually in sort of the mid-2000s, they were also published as adult. And in fact, that led to some interesting um, conclusions from people because Harper HarperCollins did new covers and catalogued them as Sabril or Sabril or however you want to say it. I'm, I'm not prescriptive about how you pronounce my characters' names. I even flip-flop myself sometimes. Um, so it was catalogued as Sabriel Adult Edition in in parentheses. And, and Amazon just put this up as Sabriel Adult Edition. And I got all these emails from people going like, hey, Sabriel Adult Edition, what's the extra content? And I was like, sorry, guys, it's exactly the same book. You know, they're, they're, I don't know what you're I would hoping. like that adult content, <laughs> yeah. please. I don't know what you're hoping for. <laughs> But your mind will provide it anyway. So that's what I figure. You know, the reader's mind will provide everything necessary um, in that regard. So I, I guess it's, it's really about the marketing of the book, how it's classified. And, and this is an issue always for young adult. Um, you know, what is young adult? You know, if we start talking about what is young adult, we'll be here for days. Um, it's really just a question of how to get the book to the biggest core audience, where it will hopefully spread more widely. Um, And in the UK, we actually thought... uh, Well, actually, we looked at quite a lot of other books which are published in the US, particularly as YA, which are published as Adult Here, and it works better. So, really, it's that... The old business of the the classification... You should never get too hung up on classifications because they're about trying to sell books. They're not really about anything else. Um, And I, I always say to people... Uh, you know, I think it's good not to not to presume too much about the classification. That it's not for you, or you know, I now I'm thirty, I can't read a young adult book, or because I'm I've suddenly turned thirteen, I can't read a children's book that's marked nine to twelve for some bizarre reason, as if like you're eight years and eleven months, you can't go near it. You know, um, so I, I think it's good to be wary of of all all of those kinds of you know categorization. It's when they're seen as prescriptive, um, so yes, it is an adult book. It is also a young adult book. Um, it is for whoever is able to read it. I think, um, and and different people at different uh, levels of of reading experience, and some will, will get different things from it.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask if the writing process had changed if you were writing for an older audience, but it sounds like it was just the same. It's all all the same, method. and even
1: and even when I'm writing. Uh, particularly short fiction where I often write things which are you know published just as adult fantasy or horror, for example. Um, it it really doesn't feel any different to me except I guess for everything I write, I'm writing for myself or a version of myself. So if I'm writing a children's book, and I might not know it's a children's book when I started, I'm writing I am writing it for me as I am now at 56, but I'm also writing it for me as I was at 10 but I'm also writing it for me as I was in my 20s reading children's books and, and every year in between, of course. Um, and I guess if I'm writing you uh, an adult story, uh, which may have some very graphic content, um, I'm writing it for myself and I'm writing it for myself from the sort of teenage years where I'd be able to cope with that, you know, that content. So I actually don't really think very much about who's reading it other than that this is a story I would like to exist. I would like to read it myself but I have to write it first in order to to do so. But then actually once I've written it and read it I'm not that interested in it anymore as a rule so' it's, I'm not quite sure what that says psychologically but
0: <laughs> no I think that's a good way to think about marketing categorizations because I feel like a lot of people look down on YA for bad reasons and it's like it's it's marketing it doesn't really say anything about the prose of the story.
1: Well, people also do that for genre, you know, genre categories as well. I mean, I mean, I often it's not actually not that often now, but years and years ago, people, you know, could be quite disparaging about science fiction or fantasy. Curiously, um, success trumps all categorization prejudice. Um, You know, once you have a New York Times bestseller. It's, that all kind of goes away, as if it, that's wiped out any prejudice about the fact that it is science fiction, or it is fantasy, or romance, for example, uh, which is perhaps one of the things where I've I've met most people who who say they don't read certain kinds of books. They say, well, I don't read romance, and I say, well, what what about Jane Austen? They go, oh yeah, well, of course I read Jane Austen. So well, that's romance too. You know, the the genres are all very broad. Um, prejudging books according to where they appear on a bookshop shelf. I think is very kind of productive. You, you miss good books. I mean, you miss bad books as well, but, but you know, judge, judge them from looking at them, reading some of it, not just on the category label on the back or on the, the flap of the hardback.
0: Yeah, hard agree. Um, I want to get into some craft questions now. We'll start with the world building. Um, I'm interested. So there are a lot of names that are clearly French, this being um, inspired by the Three Musketeers, but there are also a lot of names that I can't quite place culturally, like Lutace, Cadence, Istara. So I'm curious, where do you situate these books, linguistically, culturally, geographically?
1: Um, well, uh, I can perhaps explain it by showing the, the map. Um, I first kind of looked at this concept of a musketeer, three musketeer-like book with um, sneaking head look at the maps before I even show you. Um, I first had this this idea of a three musketeers type story with angelic magic uh, for a short story I wrote called "The Heart of the City," um, which first appeared in an anthology, but I can't remember which one. Uh, but then it's been collected in, in uh, one of my personal collections. Uh, to hold the bridge, but that that was actually set in Paris in 1626. Uh, so it was an historical fantasy. But when I started to think about writing this, uh, and I did initially think I would write it as an historical fantasy, but then I I, I thought that was too limiting, and also I might get some of the research wrong. Um, so I thought I'd I'd make it an invented an invented world, which was not at all like Europe, as you can see from this map. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I would call the country Sarance, which is not at all like France. <laughs> um, but most of the roots for the words, I mean, Lutace, which is Paris, basically, um, you know, is, is working on a variation of, of Lutetia. Um, and and um, Cadenz is, is working from Cadiz. So Nistara is actually kind of Spain, uh, and Spanish uses, uh, you know vowel wise and so on, so it's kind of trying to to connect by by resonance, I guess, without being too obvious. Um, I'm not particularly good at languages, and and linguistics is is not my field. I, Tolkien's calendar there just caught my eye, and he'd you know he'd be thinking, what an idiot, um, <laughs> you know. Of course, you must invent a language before you can be a true fantasy writer. Um, so, but I do try and connect. I do try and connect my names uh, in some way that that there is some resonance to them with the overall the overall scheme of, of the world, if they, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I'm very much the same. Like the poppy war is basically about not China and not Japan and yes. <laughs> not Europe. But
1: you know, but you know that they they kind of are, but not. Which is yeah, exactly what I I, I am for as well. So you, you can have the resonance without having the. the the direct sort of filing off of serial numbers, yeah.
0: Yeah, Um, so I I read an interview uh, with you, I think in Lightspeed, where you said that you'd named Sabriel because you liked the EL ending because it invoked like a sort of angelic um, presence and obviously Angel Mage, if you couldn't tell from the title, involves angels and magic and magic based on icons of angels. Why the interest in angelic uh, mythology?
1: Um, it actually probably stems from when I was inventing the name um, Sobriel. I actually I often spend a long time putting together fragments of words to try and make new words. But I try and use uh, you know, either complete words or par- fragments of words that that again have some resonance. Um, with Sobriel, I was I wanted a I wanted a sort of dark, powerful name, and I was looking at names. Uh, I was looking at words uh that had that that resonance and one of them I was playing with was was Sable, the heraldic term for black. Um and people of course don't necessarily know this, but it, it still has a kind of resonance even if they don't know. And then I wanted the IEL or AEL endings uh, you find in angels' names because they that has a resonance of power and majesty. Um, and I did probably I don't know 50 or 60 combinations of different things with basic with those those two things but also trying some other variations and I think that's actually probably where I first started thinking and being interested in angels and in angelic law most most of which is all is not biblical it's not you know it's all medieval most of it you know invented or even more recently Um, and I guess when I again when I was setting out with to do a musketeer Dumas inspired book I wanted so, well, what kind of magic would they have? What's, what what would be a good seventeenth-century, interesting magic? And I thought, well, angels feel like they belong, and icons. I love icons. I mean, I could have I mean, obviously had it set in a, in, a, in a Byzantine world where icons were all, you know even more important. But it all just seemed to fit together. But often that's just that's kind of instinct more than it is intellectual working out. I mean, I probably it has popped into my head. Musketeers who use icons to summon angels. Ooh, that sounds cool. Now I've got to work out how to make it work. Um, I can't always explain how, how things come together.
0: Yeah, I will say the magic system in this book is very, very cool.
1: I just love <laughs> icons too. I mean I, I, I love things. I mean, I love objects, uh, and, um, and, and the the look and feel of the 17th century, uh, you know, the, the clothes, the weapons, um, all, all of that stuff, yeah.
0: Um, another thing I noticed about the world building is that you're really specific architecturally. Like when you're describing the Star Fortress, you you go into exactly where all the turrets are, and the hallways, and the layout. And I was wondering, did you did you sketch this place out? Is it based on a real place? Like why why the importance on like exactly how it's built?
1: Um, I like things to feel real, and I think that's part of it. There is a map of the Star Fortress. Um, so I'd like to point that out. I actually wanted to have seven maps in this book, but I was restrained by my publishers. Um, they actually said I could only have two if they were redrawn, as my, my maps are normally redrawn by actual expert cartographers. Uh, Mike Schley did the ones in Golden Hand and Clariel very, very beautifully. Um, but they said I could have more maps if I just made my maps a, of a bit higher standard. Um, so I did that, and after several rounds of when we set a higher standard, that this isn't what we were thinking, it's like a higher standard, um, we, we actually did get to a point where we included them. Um, I, I draw the maps as I go along. I don't actually do them first or even early. I actually sketch them very, very roughly and fill them in as I as I go along. But I think um, with the Star Fortress, which is a very key part of... It's a, it's a key location. Uh, I, I guess describing it making it clear in my head uh, and then in the book is part of trying to construct the solidity of 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 the world Um, and it's part of using key details to weave together a world that when you're reading it feels like yes this does exist and these people do exist and this is actually all happening here right now inside the reader's head.
0: I'm kind of the same with maps I don't like because I'm just like not that interested in geography so I don't draw the map before I write the story. So when I was drafting the Poppy War, I just like made references to rivers and mountains and which way they're flowing. And then my editor was like, can we have a drawing of this map? And I was like, um. so then I like went back and like looked up all the geographic references in the manuscript and figured out that there's this one river that is said to flow in opposite directions depending <laughs> on the chapter. And that's just like not explained in the book. It, it, I just, <laughs> it, it it will not work. Well, one of the reasons
1: I, I do draw the maps as I go along and is to actually work out stuff like that but, and, and but I still get it wrong occasionally um, but I, I find it useful but I mean lots of people do do draw all the maps first I mean particularly you know fantasy writers quite often will develop uh, you know all this stuff beforehand there's many different ways to there's many different ways to write novels of course um, many 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 ways to write novels there are also many many ways to write fantasy novels and and to approach the whole. Um, top you know the whole world building aspect um, which people are always interested in, um, and some people of course do do all that preparation first you know the the maps and and character sketches and uh, you know, either in, in, in words or pictures, and I actually don't do any of that. I I, I know almost nothing when I start. I don't know. How about you, do you?
0: No, I make the exact same way, because I'm just like, I don't I don't want to think about where the mountains are. I want to get to the murder. Do you know much then... <laughs> about your
1: characters when you start? Do you... Um,
0: so I, I think in terms of theme first, so I okay. think about, like, the, the historical argument I want to make, and then I conceive of characters based on who's going to represent various sides of those arguments. Um okay. Yeah, I'm, I am clearly a, an academic, um, but but while we're talking about world building and places, I have to ask since we're in Oxford, there is a place in the book called Bell Hill, which is a university that has a round rotunda, and I live directly opposite the Radcam. and there's also a St Anthony's College there, so which we also have at Oxford. Is that in any way based on Oxford? Or am I just reading? Not to at all. This? Not at all. <laughs>
1: um, yes, it is. I mean, it's it's based on. Oxford and Cambridge and the Sorbonne, you know, it's it's a combination of the sort of great European universities in, in different ways. Um, the Rotunda, which is a vast dome of angel clarified glass, uh, you know, it, yeah, is a much larger version, you know, of the Radcliffe Camera, I guess. Or, but and similar, some other similar institutions around. Um, yeah, I, I love those kinds of buildings. So, I mean, a lot of a lot of places in my books, like the Horsons house, you know, in the middle of the waterfall, the, you know, the great library of the Clare down through the mountain. They're all things I just like to exist. And I just want them, I want them to be real. So I describe them in, in, in my books to try and, 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 and make them as real as, as, as I can. Um, so yeah, the, that's, a, and I guess the Star Fortress too, I, that's like, I, I want it to exist.
0: I would not want to live in the Star Fortress. But well, no, that's I fair do. enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a prison, guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, now I want to talk about gender. Um, I really, I think that the way that Angel Mage uh, swaps a lot of uh, the characters, the genders of the characters that are in Three Musketeers, for example, the Cardinal is a woman, In this version, the Queen is really in charge, and I think King Ferdinand is like described it as her like her boy toy that she's gotten bored of who just asks her for money sometimes. Um, and there's a captain, uh, D'Artagnan, who yeah. D- is also D'Artagnan a woman.
1: D'Artagnan is a woman. Yeah. 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 Um,
0: so I was wondering, how did you go about... So what was it like writing about those characters as women instead? How did that change your process? And uh, what are your thoughts on like representations of gender in the original book that you were trying to subvert?
1: Um, well, well, I guess, I mean, the original book is, is a product of its time. So to me it it's separate and it was also very sep- it felt separate to me um because i was inspired by i guess the look and feel of of the book and the films um but i didn't it's not as i said it's not a retelling um it's not the same story uh i didn't want to 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 try and do a retelling using the same characters even when i used Similar names, the characters, or the same names like D'Artagnan—they are not the same character. But you know, I just like the sort of resonance of, of uh, you know, of referring back to those books, but with with something that is different. Um, but I've I've always, uh, ever all the way back to Sabriel, I've always had uh, you know women all, in all the all the same roles as men in terms of what what they can do and and the positions of power they occupy and so on. And I think that just. I mean it's kind of a, a happy accident for me in some ways, but it was I when I started it wasn't with great thought. It was just, you know, I gr- I grew up with women who were capable and professional and could do everything. I think I was very lucky. I went to a co-ed school and so I had women friends who went on to, you know, to do all kinds of amazing things. Um and it's that more interesting. Um and it made the book more in- it was always made the books more interesting. Uh, because there's, there's so many books where they're just all men um, the world is not all, all men I mean thank heavens um, and uh, yeah it, to me it's always seemed a, a natural thing to uh, you know to, to, to represent all, all the genders um, a, as they would be if there weren't social constructs preventing that happening and making men be everything um, so it's to be honest, I've never, I've never given an enormous amount of thought. Uh, when a character appears, they just seem to me to be, you know, of a particular gender or uh, or, or not, um, and uh, that's just who they are. And I just write them as 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 that.
0: Um, if anybody was not already sold on this book, uh, the only uh, hints of romantic attraction between characters are between women, uh, which is. And that, awesome. just,
1: that just seemed to be I mean again, I didn't plan that that just seemed to be that that was just the right thing for those characters. Um, I, I, this sounds like I have no idea what I'm doing writing my books I mean, <laughs> and, and and to some degree, I guess that's that's true. A lot of it is just sort of instinct for for story. I, I want the story to be interesting and to work and and work for me and and be different too yeah.
0: So while we're talking about the relationship between this and the original Dumas text, um, I noticed that the voice in the prose sounds very different from like uh, Sabriel. It sounds, it sounds like you're evoking more of like the, the tone that Dumas uses and especially in the dialogue between characters. And I was wondering if, if that's something that you were deliberately trying to capture and if it was, what was it like trying to change your style to imitate something that was written a long time ago?
1: I mean I'm embarrassed to say again I really had no idea what I was doing there except that uh, I guess um the the influence was very strong in my head which made it quite easy to to, to write the dialogue uh, and so forth in this in the style of uh, you know and it's not actually in the style of Dumas but more towards that than in some of my other books um but I, I guess for me, the story and the tone of the story, which I feel quite early on, uh, will dictate the style, and I've, which has, has changed in various of my books that I've done. Um, and I, I quite like that exercise of trying to write and varying my voice. Um, I do it far more in the short fiction than I do in, in novels, I guess, uh, because you can experiment far more with with different techniques of of how to tell the story, uh, in terms of, you know, structure and, and, and viewpoint and, and, and tense and so on. Um, but again, I think if I, if I equip myself with knowing what the kind of thing I want to do, I seem to instinctively do it without having to actually think about it all that much. Um, I'm I'm really not not painting myself as a very intelligent author here, am I? Does that um, make sense though? Yeah, you think?
0: no that that is a degree of stylistic flexibility that I aspire to. I'm I'm still at the stage where I can only write like a really angsty Gen Zer. So, but I've also
1: been I've been doing this for you know a long time. Um, many years ago, I was reminded of this because I was just at the Southern Festival of Books in Nashville. Uh, And I I did an event there and a signing. And that was actually one of the first events I ever did in the US was at the Southern Festival of Books in Nashville uh, in 1997 with my book Shades Children. And I sat next to, at the signing, I sat next to the very famous cartoonist Jules Feiffer um, who, uh, you know, had a cue hundreds of people long and in fact some people came out of the queue to ask me if I was Jules's grandson or something because you know why was I sitting there next to him um which was is part of an author's you know these rites of passage for authors but afterwards uh Jules said to me and we were just joking about about that and he said to me well when 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 did your first book come out and I said well here in the US it came out last year he said well you're one year old as an author and uh, my first book came out in 1948 or whatever it was. So I'm middle-aged as an author. So, you know, you've got to put that in perspective. And I, I've always thought that was quite a good way to look at it. And now I'm kind of 30-ish as an author. And hopefully I've, I've learned, you know, to, and I've practised and try to do so many different things that, uh, you know, hopefully I have learned something about being able to uh, to tell stories in different ways and and uh, and tackle them Um but the, the, the proof is in, is in the books, I guess, whether I've achieved that or not.
0: I think it works quite well. Um, I'm two as an author, so yeah. <laughs> I'm learning to talk right now. <laughs> um, Stevie, how are we doing on time? Okay, cool. Uh, I'll just ask one more question. So I read in the deal announcement for Angel Mage that it's part of a two-book deal of adult fantasy novels. The other book is called The Left-Handed Booksellers of London, correct? That's Will you right. tell us about that?
1: Um, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London uh, comes out next year. Um, Amazingly for me, I've actually already written it. Um, It's quite rare for me to have finished a book before I'm on tour with, you know, when I'm on on tour with the the current book. I'm nearly always behind. Uh, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London is set in 1983 in a slightly alternative UK um, I actually changed the history a bit just to uh, again make it a more inclusive society back then not not having to wait till now um, I thought there's no I'm not writing an historical novel I'm writing a fantasy that happens to be set in a version of 1983 um, and it concerns uh, basically a secret society of booksellers whose job it is to keep the mythic entities of of ancient England under control, um, who are constantly trying to emerge into the contemporary world and cause trouble. Um, and there's all kinds of there's all kinds of very complex uh, relationships between all kinds of very different entities and magic. Um, the left-handed booksellers are kind of like the field agents who go and do all the fighting and and uh, all all the sort of. Uh, wet work. I mean, it's, it is a thriller, a fantasy thriller. Um, the right-handed booksellers are the intellectual ones who stay back in the bookshops and work everything out and plan everything and do all the research. Um, so the booksellers uh, are always involved in dealing with with the, the, these mythic intrusions. Um, but they also run two bookshops in London and uh, some a few elsewhere. Um, and the story concerns a young art student uh, who's come to London. You know, Susan, to search for her father, who she's never known, um, and she almost immediately uh, is drawn into, uh, she meets a young left-handed bookseller called Merlin, who uh, saves her, and then she saves him from stuff that's going on, and it turns out that you know, her quest, if you like, or her search for her father is very much entangled with bookseller business um, and uh, the adventure ensues. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Blackwell's Presents. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at@, at Blackwell's Oxford. Check out our YouTube page at@, at Blackwell's Books and see what exciting events we have coming up in the bookshop on our event Byte page.